from sin. I love our church, and I love the elders of our church. These men have served me well in the time that my family have been here. I've been reproved, I've been encouraged, I've been taught well, and I've been given a good example in which to follow. And I remember the first time I met Pastor Brett about nine years ago at Starbucks Coffee. Uh, I was a young guy out of Bible college looking to join the Southern Baptists and possibly go help with church planting in Los Angeles. And uh, you shepherded my heart even then. And in some of the most hardest trying times that my family have gone through, these men have been there helping carry us through those times. And I know that many of you have similar sentiments and similar stories that you could share. And even though we, have a, we are still a flawed church, but we are a healthy church. And that health is directly related to how faithful our elders have been to the gospel. But these men are still flawed men. They struggle with idols of the heart and sins of unbelief just like you and I do. And there's a quote that I heard when I was 16 that I have never forgotten. It says that any sin that any sinner has ever committed, every sinner could commit under proper provocation. I mean, we would be arrogant and foolish to think that these men could not fall. We've all heard of the horror stories that various elders have committed in churches. And the truth is that there is nothing apart from the grace of God preventing our elders from falling into the same sins as those men. They have the same sin nature, the same natural bend away from God. And if they're in the same circumstances, they too would fall into those same sins apart from God's grace. And as part of God's grace, he has given the church some responsibilities towards their elders to ensure that they stay faithful to the gospel so that the church stays faithful to the gospel. The Ephesians church is a hot mess, and that's primarily due to the leadership through their elders. Unqualified elders were being elected, they were teaching false doctrine, they had a love for money and a desire to become rich. Once they realized that they were electing and had unqualified leaders, they weren't rebuking them or removing them. Everything is there for your classic church scandal. And these are the circumstances in which Timothy is sent to help fix. And unless Timothy is able to remove these unqualified elders and elect and and plant good faithful elders according to chapter 3, nothing will save this church. In our passage today, we are given four responsibilities we have towards our elders to ensure that they stay faithful to the gospel. Our first responsibility is in verse 17, which says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. This word honor here, it generally has the idea of respect, and we see it used in that way in chapter 6, verse 1, in reference to slaves honoring their masters. Slaves were to respect their masters. And we're commanded to honor our elders in this way, to respect them. And there's no greater way that we can respect our elders than to obey the specific commands that were given in scripture primarily through 1 Peter 5:5 5, 5 and Hebrews 13:7 and submitting to our elders authority. 
And I won't, be, I won't belabor this point because Dalton spoke on this a few months ago in his now famous Be Like Norman sermon. And if you remember Dalton's sermon, he gave this illustration of this unusually submissive cow named Norman. And he was a joy to work with from what I remember. And then Dalton went on and he talked about how humility was the lubrication in correlation, in relation to our submission to our elders. It is much easier for a shepherd to lead a submissive sheep rather than to drag a stubborn, hard-headed one. A good shepherd will drag you kicking and screaming for your own good, but they'd much rather lead you. And in case you haven't had enough opportunities with COVID to apply this scriptural principle and submitting to your elders authority pastor brett gave us another great opportunity this morning when he spoke on election that's historically a very contentious divisive subject and something to talk about but are you going to respond critically or uh, contentiously or are you going to respond submissively you don't have to agree with what he taught on but Being critical is not going to be helpful. It's not going to serve the church in any way. You will be held accountable to God for how well you submit to your elders' authority. Don't be the stubborn sheep. Let them lead you joyfully and not grievously as Hebrews 13.7 says. They don't need that extra weight, that unnecessary weight on their shoulders. But honor can also be used in financial terms such as in uh, chapter 5 verse 3 that Brad spoke on the last time we met in reference to widows. Widows were to be provided for financially. They were to be honored in that way. Those who had no other means to take care of them. This is what it means to give double honor. Not only are we to give our elders respectful submission, we're also to honor them by financially providing for those dedicated to the preaching and teaching ministries. This is where we get our word honorarium. When a guest speaker speaks in a church, it's customary to give them a financial gift. It's how we show respect or honor for the services they've just given to us. Uh, this, in this financial way, is how honor is used in this passage. And verse 18 makes that really clear. And it's highly probable that these false teachers who had crept into leadership were abusing and taking advantage of the financial resources of this church. So it's necessary for Paul to teach that it was right to honor their elders in this way. Paul then goes on and he gives two examples for why we need to honor our elders through financial compensation. And he speaks to two different authorities here. The first authority he speaks to is the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 25.4 when he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The point Paul's making is quite clear here. The ox is doing the work. He deserves some of the reward. And I'm no farmer, but I would imagine if this massive, huge animal becomes discontent and decides to sit down, it's probably not going to be easy to get him up and moving again and being productive. You'd want to do whatever it took to make sure he was nourished, happy, anything it took to make him productive. And Paul develops this argument further in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things? He then goes on and correlates how the Old Testament priests were compensated through the sacrifices and offerings of those in the Old Testament. And elders laboring in the church should be worthy of this same compensation. 
Paul then strengthens his argument by speaking to a higher authority, quoting the words of Jesus in Luke ten seven when he says, the laborer deserves his wages. The point here is quite clear as well. When you go to work, you expect a paycheck. I don't know about you, but if I go to work and on payday my check's not there, I'm probably not coming back the next day. And when Jesus gives these words, it's in relation to him sending out the 72 disciples. They were told not to take any money, no provisions, and that they were to be compensated by those that they were ministering to. And to summarize, Paul is saying that the elders should be honored through financial provision, and he uses the authority of the Pentateuch and of Jesus to make his case. Well, the charge to honor our elders primarily through financial compensation, Paul then gives two qualifications. The first one is, uh, in verse 17, it says, and the elders who rule well. What's this mean to rule well? I think it's implied that the elders will be ruling well, because if they're not, they should be being rebuked and removed from office, which we'll look at in a moment. But most likely this is referring to faithfully living out 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16. If you look at verse 12 in chapter 4, it says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Elders are deserving of honor when they're giving the church an example of what it looks like to follow Christ, of what it looks like in chapter 3, to follow the, the qualifications of an elder. I mean, she, sheep are a dumb animal. My, my wife told me growing up that they used to have some sheep and they'd always go to the back of the property when it rained and they'd get stuck in the mud. And they'd do this continually. You'd always have to go and drag them out. But sheep are not a smart animal. And I think it's very fitting and kind of humorous that the Lord uses sheep as an illustration that he compares us to. But sheep need a shepherd. And elders of our church, our people will not grow further in godliness than the example you give us. Give us an example worthy of our honor. The second qualification that Paul gives is in the last part of verse 17, which says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Whereas all elders are involved in the teaching ministries of the church, as chapter 3 tells us in the qualifications for an elder, certain elders should be set aside specifically and devoted to the ministry of the word. The early church wouldn't have had the financial resources to financially support all of their elders. And Paul's saying, you need to take the resources you have and give it to elders who can devote themselves to the word. That's why in Acts 6, they appointed deacons so that the apostles could devote themselves to the ministry of the word. We don't want our, our teaching elders to have to worry about providing for their families, getting a secular job. We want them devoted to the word. If we really believe that this is vital, that this is everything, that should be important to us to make sure that they have what they need so that they can focus on the gospel and on the word and, and teaching us so that we can grow. But it, he, he says it's not just those set aside for preaching and teaching. He also says it's for those who work hard. This phrase has the idea of one who works to the point of exhaustion. And, and as, I, as I was processing this phrase here, it, it was weighty to me. I mean, while the specific applications, obviously, for Pastor Brett here, you know, I'm looking at a room 
filled with aspiring preachers and teachers in this church. When you preach, what kind of effort are you giving? Can you say that you're working to the point of exhaustion? Something that convicted me was, what about children's ministry? Are we putting forth the same effort for those kids as we would on Sunday night or Sunday morning? Our people need more than fast food. How hard are we working in our teaching? So we're to honor our elders. Verse 19, we are to protect our elders. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder. So this literally means do not receive an accusation. It means do not entertain it, ignore it. The simple act of turning a deaf ear is one of the best ways we can protect our elders. The truth is that Satan wants nothing more than to see the church crumble. And enemies of the gospel often take vengeance on ministers of the gospel. And nothing more can ruin an elder's ministry than a smear campaign trying to destroy his character. So we need to be protecting our elders from an unsubstantiated claim. If it is not proven to be true by multiple witnesses, we're not to listen to it. It must be verified. Rumor and speculation are not enough. Our culture loves chaos. I mean, when you turn on the news, do you ever hear anything that's positive and encouraging? I mean, no, it's, it's always about what this guy did that's horrible, what, what this nation's doing. It's never anything good. And that's kind of our natural bend. We like that. Uh, our natural sin nature, when we hear gossip, gossip, we hear slander, we like to take that and run with it. But if we hear or witness anyone disparaging or criticizing one of our elders, we need to stop them in their tracks. Don't even let them finish talking. We need to direct them back to Matthew 18. You need to ask them if they have talked to the elder specifically about what they're saying. Because if somebody disparages me as just a regular member of this church, it would be wrong. And, and there would be some consequences. But if you disparage one of our elders with a false accusation... I mean, the consequences would be much graver. I mean, at best, it would cause some division. And at worst, it could cause some people to walk away from the faith. Do not allow anyone to disparage one of our elders with an unsubstantiated claim. But this begs the question, when are we supposed to listen and to take a charge seriously? Well, the next phrase in verse 19 says, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is referencing Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, which is saying in a formal legal setting, you need more than one witness to convict somebody of a crime. Jesus then expands this principle in Matthew 18, teaching what we call church discipline. First, you're to go to the sinning brother privately If he doesn't listen, you go to him with two or three others. If he doesn't listen then, you bring him before the church. If he doesn't listen to even the church, we're to treat him like an unbeliever. Because that's what he's acting like. The fruit of his life is saying, I am not a Christian. In church discipline, we're we're always trying to reconcile the sinning brother back. We're We're always trying to draw him back to the flock. But if that can't be done, it's to purify the church. 
And some think a separate form of church discipline is laid out here for elders, but I, I don't see anything in the text that should make us think that Paul's doing anything but leading us back to what the principles Jesus laid out in Matthew. Our, lead, our elders lead our church, but they're still part of our church. If they sin, and hate to break it to you, our elders do sin, we're to treat them like any other person caught in sin. Sinning doesn't necessarily disqualify an elder. Habitual sinning does. Unrepentant sin does. Certain egregious sins do. When I was in Bible college, I remember one of my pastoral classes, the professor was teaching that you need to be careful and not get too close to the members of your church. Uh, Don't make yourself too vulnerable to them. Because sheep... Sometimes they bite back. And that, that never really set well with me. And I know the elders of our church, they don't, they don't believe in this philosophy. They believe in building relationships, living in community, doing life with one another. And when you live this kind of transparent life before people, you're going to see some flaws. But what are they known by? What is their character? Does that sin define them? When you think of Michael Jordan, did you just think of the worst minor league baseball player that's ever played? No, you think of one of, if not the greatest basketball player that ever stepped on the court. The same's true with our elders. They will sin, but are they known by that sin? If they are known by it, multiple witnesses will bear that truth out. So we are to honor our elders, we are to protect our elders from unsubstantiated claims. Thirdly, we are to rebuke our elders, verse 20. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. So while we are to protect our elders from false accusations, they're not to receive immunity from true ones. The emphasis here is on unrepentant habitual sin, those who are continuing in sin. Once an accusation has been proven true, they are to be rebuked before the whole church, not quietly, not only before the other elders as to sweep it under a rug, but before the whole church so that the whole body can confront them. And the reason for that is in the next phrase, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So the purpose of the public rebuke is to instill fear in the remaining elders so that they won't fall into a sin that will disqualify them as well. This is the only place in in this passage where I see a slight difference in Matthew 18. Because whether whether or not the elder repents at this point really isn't the issue. Yes, they they can still be reconciled back to the flock, but they have fallen short of the character qualifications found in chapter 3. They must be removed from leadership and rebuked so that the people understand why they are no longer in leadership. This public rebuke will put a healthy fear in the hearts of the remaining elders. Throughout scripture, fear is often used as a motivation to keep us in the faith. If you do a word study on all the various ways we are told to fear the Lord and the the various examples we're given to fear the Lord, you'll find that it's well over a hundred times. The phrase, the fear of the Lord, specifically is used 25 times, with 14 of those in the book of Proverbs. In Genesis 22, we have a good example of Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice the child of promise, and God says that it was 
his fear of him that motivated that obedience. Job 1.8, God says that Job's obedience was motivated by the fear of the Lord. In Exodus 1, we have a great example of the midwives. When Pharaoh commanded them to throw the firstborn sons into the Nile River, they, they did not obey Pharaoh because they feared God more than Pharaoh. And one of the most interesting things I came across is Second Kings 17.7. And this is in the context of God allowing Israel to be judged by Assyria coming in, taking them into captivity. And God says the reason that he did that was because Israel feared other gods rather than the Lord. Now, this, this idea of the fear of the Lord it encompasses this idea of, of shrinking back and God, at God's great hatred of, of sin. But at the same time, it's the idea of drawing close to the holiness, the majesty, and the glory of God. It's not a trembling dread that paralyzes action, but neither is it a polite reverence. I think this is where we often misunderstand the fear of the Lord. It, it is not simply respect. It's much deeper than that. John Piper illustrated this well by telling a story of when he took his six-year-old son Karsten to a friend's house. While they were at the friend's house, he asked his son to go out to the car to retrieve something. And as the son was walking to the car, he was met by this huge, growling dog. And the friend yelled out at him, Stop! Do not run from him. He doesn't like it when you run from him. Just slowly walk up to him. Let him sniff your hand. Then he'll let you pet him. You can put your arm around him. He'll even play with you. God is horrifically dangerous to run away from. And we should be terrified to run away and rebel against him. But if we humbly draw near to him, his growl becomes a growl of our protection and not of our destruction. This is the kind of fear that publicly rebuking a guilty elder is meant to instill. The other elders should be filled with this healthy dread and reverence towards God that motivates them to stay faithful. It should serve as a reminder that any sin that any sinner has ever committed, every sinner could commit under proper provocation. It should humble them, cause them to cling to God because it's only by his grace that they too do not fall. Then moving on to verse 21, Paul is giving a strong, urgent plea to Timothy in this verse. And this, this verse is it's just dripping with legal verbiage, continuing the imagery of a courtroom setting. The phrase, I solemnly charge you, it expresses a formal charge and gives the idea of testifying under oath. And then the phrase, to maintain these principles, the ESV translates as to keep. It gives the idea of to keep a law from being broken. There's a very strong legal seriousness being stressed here. And then Paul reminds Timothy that it's in the presence of God and the angels that you're to carry out these duties. He's reminding him that God is watching you, Timothy. It's, it's almost as if God, or it's almost as if Paul is saying that God and the angels are the jury presiding over this. And Paul is making Timothy put his hand on the Bible and promise and make an oath saying that I will faithfully carry out these principles. 
Paul gives a, a nearly identical charge in 2 Timothy 4.1 when he commands Timothy to preach the word. This tells us that God views the purity of the leadership of a church as vital as the message that's being proclaimed. I mean, what kind of message do you think an unqualified elder would be giving? I mean, compromised character always leads to compromised doctrine. That's why it is so important for Timothy and us as well to carry out these principles to ensure that our elders stay faithful to the gospel. And as he's carrying these these orders out, he is to do it without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Uh, without bias or without prejudging. Again, it's, it's in this legal sense of prejudging a case or making up one's mind before hearing all the facts. It would be very difficult to carry out this sentence of rebuking a sinning elder. Let alone for Timothy, this young pastor who's being sent to this hot mess in Ephesus. There would have been a lot of temptation to compromise, to make concessions. He would have been under pressure from the false teachers, the members of the church, the culture at large. Let's put this in our own context here. Let's, Let's get real close to home. Rob, I'm going to use you as an example here, brother. But Rob, Rob is influential. Rob is liked by a lot of people. Rob likes the Chiefs. Rob is funny. Who doesn't like Rob? But what if we remove Rod, Rob from leadership? It'll cause an uproar. I mean, he, he was here since the founding of our church, for crying out loud. There will be division. People could leave. Finances could dwindle. We won't be able to pay our staff. We won't be able to pay our mortgage. The church could dissolve. This is what that looks like. And it happens in churches all the time across America and the world. So Paul is telling Timothy that he must be careful to weigh the facts before he makes a judgment regarding an elder. He must be sure not to allow personal biases to influence his judgments. He is to fear God and not man. And the same is true for us. We must carry out these charges, not letting personal biases influence our decisions, regardless of external pressures, regardless of our affection towards our elders. So we are to honor our elders, we are to protect our elders, we are to rebuke our elders, and fourthly, we are to cautiously elect our elders. Verse 22 here is part of a larger section extending to verse 25, which I believe Duncan's speaking on that next, so I'm just going to make a few comments on verse 22 here. So verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily. Do not lay hands, hands upon here. There are two main interpretations of this passage. It could be referring to electing an elder too quickly without allowing adequate time to discern their character. Or it could refer to lifting a former sinning elder who has been rebuked in the past back into leadership. Most likely it's referring to an elder, a, a new elder being elected too quickly. In the New Testament, when the practice of laying on of hands is mentioned, it's usually in the context of ordaining or commissioning someone for service. 
If you look at 1 Timothy 4.14, the next chapter over, you'll see that laying on of hands was used when Timothy was commissioned into the ministry. It's highly unlikely that in the following chapter, in the same book, in the same context, that this phrase would be used differently. The next phrase in verse 22. So thereby share responsibility for sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. Laying on of hands is often associated with identification with whoever you're laying hands on. And the practice of laying on of hands originated in the Old Testament in regards to animal sacrifice. Leviticus 16.21 is a great example of this. It's on the day of the atonement, the high priest would take a goat, he would place his hands on the head of that goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto that goat, and then they would release that goat into the wild. They were identifying with this goat, identifying with the Messiah who is to come. There's a lot of other passages we could look at here, but the idea is that whoever you lay your hands on, you're identifying with them. You are agreeing that this man that you are electing fulfills the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you elect an elder too quickly without allowing time to judge their character, you'll be guilty of the sins of that elder in misleading the church. We must be cautious allowing time to determine the character of the elders we elect. As I mentioned earlier, I love our church. There is no other group of flawed, redeemed sinners I would rather do life with. And I want our church to remain faithful to the gospel. But in order for that to happen, our elders have to stay faithful to the gospel. Remember that any sin that any sinner ever committed, every sinner could commit under proper provocation. These men are capable of falling just like you and I are. In order for our elders to remain faithful, we have responsibilities to keep towards them. We must honor our elders both in respectful submission as well as financially supporting those dedicated to the preaching and teaching ministries. We must protect our elders from unsubstantiated assaults against their character. Those who are proven to be guilty, we must hold accountable and publicly rebuke to instill the fear of God in the remaining faithful elders. And we must cautiously elect our elders after adequate time to determine their character. We are a means of grace that God has chosen to help keep these men faithful. Don't take that responsibility lightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of 1 Timothy and specifically this passage. We thank you for our elders and their faithfulness in providing an example for us. I pray that you help us to take the responsibilities you lay out here seriously and to take them to heart, that we would honor our elders, that we would protect them when we hear any criticism or anything that's unsubstantiated. Lord, help us if the need ever arises, God forbid, that we would take the responsibility seriously to rebuke our elders. And God, help us to take time to judge the character 
of the men we're considering to elect. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church, bless our elders, give them wisdom in leading this church. God, we love you, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Thank you, brother. You have served us well. And it is an encouragement to think about how God has been to our church, how much he's brought us through. And uh, I think this last song, let's, let's go and stand and sing. This, this last song is a great way to end tonight. Uh, it's a, a new one we've begun singing as a church. Whatever, the Lord, whatever my God ordains is right. And this is something that uh, is a great song to have echoing through our minds to, to prepare us for inevitable trials uh, until Christ comes back. So uh, may this bless us this week. Whatever my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever He does, and follow where he guided He is my God Though dark my road He holds me that I shall not fall And so to him I leave it all And so to him I leave it all Whatever my God ordains is right, whatever will deceive me, He leads me by the prosper path, I know He will not leave me. I take content what He has said, His hand can turn my griefs away. Patiently I wait his day, and patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now his cup on tree may bitter faintest. Oh,
to him I leave it all. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word, for the way you reveal yourself to us in all that you've given us in your word. And we pray that we would apply what you've taught us in this passage of scripture. We pray that we would respond respectfully to our elders, that we would not be like stubborn sheep. We pray that we would joyfully be a part of the compensation of our ministers, our staff. I pray that we would be encouraged to work hard as uh, this passage tonight mentioned, regardless of what our hands find to do in this body, whether we're um, in children's ministry, whether we're cleaning up, whatever we do, help us to do it joyfully. Help us to remember the responsibility that we have to be part of purifying our church. Remind us not to run away from God. And to flee from uh, God, our Savior, and our Father. Help us to be cautious in our consideration of leaders. And, uh, dear God, just help us all to be a means of grace. Thank you so much for what you've given us. And we pray that you'd be the one that is glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.